Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. My guest today, Elizabeth Arsenault, is a professor at Georgetown University, and she's out with a new book, How the Gloves Came Off, Lawyers, Policymakers, and Norms in the Debate on Torture. The book examines how the Bush administration shattered a widely held consensus against using torture and what that means for the current debate about intelligence gathering, Guantanamo, so-called black sites, and crucially, executive power. These debates, which raged during the Bush administration, came roaring back just days into the Trump administration with word that a draft executive order covering many of these issues was circulating around the White House. And we kick off discussing that executive order before having a wider conversation about debates surrounding torture and also what to do with ISIS combatants captured on the battlefield. If you like and learn from this conversation, then I'd urge you to do two things. First, check out Elizabeth's book. Second, become a premium subscriber and listen to a bonus episode with Professor Arsenault, in which she concisely and, dare I say, entertainingly explains international relations theory. It's a pretty nerdy conversation, but interesting and a lot of fun. We discuss the differences between the big isms in international relations, like realism and liberalism, the history of the academic study of the field, and how IR theory can help you make sense of some decisions taken by the Trump administration. That is just one of the bonus episodes you can unlock by becoming a premium subscriber. You can do so by clicking on the support the show link on globaldispatchespodcast.com or following the links in the description field of this episode in iTunes. And listen, if this podcast is part of your routine, if you listen to it on the way to work, at home, training for a marathon, and crazy enough, I know of at least two of you who listen to this podcast while running and training for a marathon, then please, please become a premium subscriber, support the show. There is no other show out there like this. And if you want to see this podcast thrive and grow, then become a premium subscriber. Thank you so, so much. And now here is Elizabeth Arsenault. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Where things stand right now, so so following all the decisions that had been made in the early 2000s, there was significant pushback. There was significant course corrections around torture. So President Obama, in one of his first acts in office, he signed Executive Order 13491 and Executive Orders 13492. So that ended the detention, the, the detention program, the rendition, the interrogation program. One of the key caveats about those two executive orders is that taken together, they said that all interrogation techniques that were not in the Army Field Manual would be banned. So you saw that on the executive side. In addition, you saw 
pushback from the Department of Defense, from the, from the, um, the, the CIA. You also saw pushback from the legislative branch. You saw pushback from the judicial branch. So you saw cases such as Razul versus Bush, Hamden versus Rumfeld, Boom Dien versus Bush, that together with that plus the Detainee Treatment Act, the Military Commissions Act, they greatly restricted the executive's ability to manage detainees. You add on to that the, the, the torture ban that was passed as part of the NDAA last year. So all of this is- And the is NDAA say, is, is what? Just explain. I'm sorry, the, the National Defense Authorization Act. Mm-hmm. So all of that taken together is to say, no matter what, no matter who would have been elected, there was such a significant institutional pushback around the- around the idea of torture being used as an intelligence gathering technique, such a significant course correction. But then you saw something really puzzling happen in the presidential debate, from my perspective, which was you saw candidates almost competing in their embrace of coercive techniques. And, and you're referring Republican to the primary. Republican primary debate. So. I am absolutely referring to the Republican primary. Right? So, I, don't, I don't remember Hillary and Bernie. Uh, yeah. <laughs> No, I mean, so so during the Republican primary, you see this really puzzling dynamic where you see these candidates competing essentially to say, well, I, you know, I condemn waterboarding. And then someone would respond and say, well, that just means you're soft on national security, soft on defense. And so when you would watch these debates in these town halls, you saw this really troubling dynamic of now President Trump, but then, you know, candidate Trump, you saw candidate Cruz engaging in this debate about what was torture, what were these coercive techniques, and then President Trump saying things like, I would go even farther, right? You you take waterboarding, I would go even farther. If you, if you accept the Geneva Conventions, well, I think that we should go after terrorist families. And, and, endorsing practices that are not only against international law, I mean, that are not only war crimes, but practices that are against U.S. domestic law. And perhaps for me, the most troubling part was that during these Republican primary debates, during the town halls, these statements were often met with rounds of applause, you know, people people endorsing the idea that torture, torture is a legitimate intelligence gathering, a legitimate counterterrorism technique. So so President Obama comes in, really engages in significant course corrections, again, in the executive branch, in the legislative branch, in the judicial branch. But then in the fall, you see these really troubling statements going back to the idea that, that torture works. And troubling statements, too, because even at the height of these coercive practices being used, even at the height of these practices being used in in by the by the Department of Defense, by the CIA, they were never used as a form of punishment, right? They they were used as a form of intelligence gathering. Mm-hmm. And when you consider the technique of waterboarding, waterboarding itself was only used three times. Now again, I am not in any way condoning it. Three times is three times too many. But you see a very different sort of discourse around these practices with now President Trump of of moving away from the idea of these practices as intelligence gathering practices and more towards punitive practices, you know? So, 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 but do you see that exclusively in, in his rhetoric though? Because there was 
uh, just a few days after his inauguration, a leaked executive order, a draft executive order that would have reinstated the so-called black sites where the, um, the, these, you know, waterboarding and other enhanced interrogation techniques or torture, uh, occurred, right? Exactly. So you saw the leaked draft executive order and there was, there was a great deal of confusion around it. I, I believe Sean Spicer said it didn't come from us. We don't know where that came from, but one of the things that that draft executive order stated was that it wanted to essentially roll back the clock to before executive order 13491 and 13492, essentially going back to the earlier days, the sort of 2006 era practices, and the notion of, again, re-engaging, reopening these black sites around the world. Can you explain uh, just, just briefly what the black sites are? Absolutely. So the black sites were, they were locations that had been set up for places for the U.S. government to render detainees to. So places that the U.S. government would, so capture bad guys off the battlefield and then take them to these, these black sites, these places that are essentially legal black holes for the purposes of interrogation, interrogation for intelligence gathering. Now, it's important to note the rendition program, this this notion of capturing people off the battlefield and then taking them to different places to be interrogated, that program didn't start with Barack Obama. It didn't start with President Bush. It actually goes all the way back to President Clinton. So the rendition program starts under President Clinton, but it actually was more of a way of just getting bad guys off the street. It wasn't really done so much for its intelligence gathering of value. And so under President Bush, we see this program dramatically expand with the idea that bad guys could essentially be picked off the street, sent to these black sites and interrogated for the purposes of getting operational knowledge about about what al-Qaeda was going to do next, knowledge about the organizational structure, knowledge about impending threats. And and uh, these were, there are a few in Eastern Europe. There was uh, Gitmo, obviously, one of the big ones. Um, was it Bagram Air Force Base in, in Afghanistan? Exactly. That so, was one. And so I think there, there was one in like Southeast Asia. Thailand, well. right. Yeah, so you have Thailand. black site in Thailand, you have black sites in, in Central and Eastern Europe. There's one at Bagram. But as you know, I mean, the, the most famous was the, the black site at Guantanamo Bay. So these places taken together, they, they represented areas by which the U.S. government could, could hold, could interrogate detainees for the purposes of gathering insight into, you know, you know what al-Qaeda, what, what terrorist groups were going to do next on the war on terror. Okay. And, and so let's then go back to the, the Bush administration, because that's kind of where this new era, this new modern era of black sites seemingly being almost a, a partisan issue. I mean, I know there are Republicans who uh, are stridently anti-torture, stridently anti-black sites, but as you you know noted yourself in, in the uh, Republican primary debates, there was this impetus to want to, you know, demonstrate one's, you know, assertiveness by, by, you know, playing with torture, um, right. rhetorically playing with torture. So, so let's go back to the, to the Bush administration, because it seems like there was this kind of universal consensus against torture until the, um, until the Bush administration, until the, the September 11th attacks, then, then all of a sudden it seemed that that consensus started to be chipped uh, away at. So, so where, where did that happen? How did that start? 
So I think it's a great point to start of noting that the, the consensus against torture is is one of these uniquely American ideas. The, the idea that we treat people in our custody humanely, it, it's an idea that is the core, I would argue, of not only U.S. military identity, but of, but of U.S. identity writ large. So the standards by which we, we treat detainees come down to the Geneva Conventions, so the Geneva Conventions of 1949, and then the Convention Against Torture, which was promulgated in 1984. But centuries before that, the United States had reaffirmed and, and dedicated itself to the idea that individuals in our custody deserved to be treated humanely. Individuals that were captured during wartime could not just be treated as common criminals, could not just be simply summarily executed, but they had rights. And so this is laid out in the Geneva Conventions in 1949. And then the notion that torture, torture is unequivocally wrong, is promulgated again in in the 1984 Convention Against Torture. The United States not only is a signer of both of these, these conventions, but these are these ideas are in U.S. military identity, U.S. military law, U.S. law. And so we stand on the eve of the attacks of 9-11 as a state that throughout our history, we've had varying degrees of compliance with these with these international conventions, with these international laws. But but after each conflict that the United States engaged in, we made steps to further reaffirm our commitment. So when there were mistakes that were made during wartime, we made steps to correct that. We made steps to state that humane treatment is, is an American ideal. It, it is part of who we are as Americans. But you also see on the, on the eve of the attacks of 9-11, you see in government a set of actors who who have a core set of beliefs about executive privilege, and particularly executive privilege in a time of war. You have a, a core set of beliefs about the, the primacy or lack thereof of international law. You have a lot of actors in the government who believe that international law has no sort of constraints or oversight over U.S. domestic law. And so what you have are all international laws have have weaknesses. All laws have gaps. And what happened after the attacks of 9-11 is that actors inside the government, in particular, what I look at in the course of my research are policymakers and lawyers inside the government, sort of probed, they, they, they pushed at these gray spaces in the laws to put forward their own view about executive power and executive right. And essentially this idea that in a time of war, the executive has, in their view, Un, unchecked authority, unchecked privilege to exercise whatever authorities, whatever he seeks to do in that in that conflict. And and um, just to be clear, you're probably, I imagine, referring to the office of the vice president and uh, <laughs> legal and lawyers like John Yu, right? Absolutely. So so thinking about you know not only Vice President Cheney but also David Addington, who worked in the office of Vice President, in particular looking at the Office of Legal Counsel in the Department of Justice. So absolutely, so individuals like Jay Bybee, individuals like John Yu. It is worth noting, however, that John Yu, while he is the author of of many of these policies that challenge the Geneva Conventions, that that challenge the prevailing interpretation of the Convention Against Torture, John Yu himself, several weeks ago, wrote a New York Times op-ed that stated that President Trump's administration, in his view, was an executive power run amok. 
in, in the view of President See, Trump. So you're too hot for John Yu. Then, exactly. Then so that, so that should give us intense, yeah. pause, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so this is so on the eve of 9-11, you you have actors in the government who have these certain beliefs. You have these ambiguities in the law. And you combine all of that with the shock and the fear and the vulnerability of being attacked, of, of what it meant to be the target of a terrorist attack on the U.S. homeland. And so you saw actors crafting interpretations of these laws that were that were unprecedented. So essentially making claims about essentially taking away people's rights by making claims to the Geneva Conventions. It had never been done before. So, so I mean, this suggests to me that you have this like exogenous shock, like like the uh, September 11th attacks that you know that that um, gave people who have this certain view of executive authority the ability to abrogate certain key human rights standards and pursue torture. That I mean, that sort of suggests to me that all it would take. Uh, to reinstate these policies is another sort of big shock or another terrorist attack against the United States. But this time it'll probably be, um, you know, like, like the, the Bush administration, but on, on steroids. So it is worth noting, like I said at the beginning, that because of this, because of how deeply this shook the United States to its core, the amount of checks that were put in place so that this couldn't happen again. So there are significant checks. There are significant checks, again, by the legislative branch. But it it does take individuals with access and influence. I mean, it was, it was heartening to note the appointment of Secretary Mattis, an individual who, you know, as was widely reported in the media, when he met with Donald Trump, then Donald Trump claimed to sort of change his views about torture, right? He then, because Mattis talked to him and said, historically, what, what worked for him was what giving somebody a couple beer and a, a couple beers and a couple cigarettes, and that that was the best way of gathering intelligence. But it is it is concerning to me the ease with which actors who had an interest in abrogating these laws and norms found ways around it. So found, found ways of creating legal black holes like we saw at Guantanamo, found ways of sort of exercising these legal gymnastics. Right. You know, it's, it's the old adage. It's, it's, it's not what's illegal. It's what's legal. That, that is actually shocking. But, but okay. So, so one bit of pushback. So, so you said, uh, so you said that, um, after the excesses of the Bush administration, the Obama administration came over, the, the, like the, it's, they sort of institutionalized through laws and, and other means, a sort of an anti-tor, an anti-torture consensus, right? But one thing that didn't happen were any criminal prosecutions of people who were responsible for executing this policy. And to what extent, I mean, do you think that that um, is uh, that deterrent effect is is no longer? there is it sort of has failed this is one of the great debates about and particularly after the release of the senate torture report so so the the report of the senate intel committee committee that looked at these practices in the cia was the question about what what should happen and i'm, I'm glad that you used the word deterrent i mean the idea of a deterrent is that it, it raises the cost of some activity so it doesn't happen again right and so who was actually punished for these acts so there were there were actors punished. Uh, the actors who were punished were primarily the individuals who were involved in Abu Ghraib. So individuals like Sabrina Harmon, individuals like Lindy England, 
individuals like Janice Karpinski, those were individuals punished. Like very but that was primarily level, exactly. Like I mean, so prison so guard, when you when you see that, so that's just for the DOD program. For the CIA program, the CIA did convene a number of accountability proceedings, but with regards to criminal prosecution, I think particularly actors, uh, for example, with the ACLU, with with you know, a various number of human rights groups, they were looking for criminal proceedings of the actual architects of the program, right? Looking for criminal proceedings against, for example, John Yu or against Vice President Cheney. What is worth noting is that the Department of Justice convened uh, essentially their professional board, the Office of Professional Responsibility, to look into you know, what should be done with regards to the legal analyses made at this time. And they did recommend disbarment. Uh, for example, in the case of John Yu, that decision, however, was not ultimately carried out. So you're left with this situation then in which the people who've been arguably most punished, the interrogators, the essentially low-level prison guards who, in the case of Abu Ghraib, were were acting out of a variety of motivations. Some of them were revenge. Some of them were motivated by boredom. Some of it was just sadism, pure and simple. Whereas you don't have accountability and deterrence for these very high-level policymakers and lawyers. And so it, it, it leads one to question, what is to prevent what is to prevent this from happening again, right? If the individuals most punished, in my opinion, are the ones who are least responsible, least responsible for developing, for, for sort of orchestrating this mass program. I think it is a problem. But you saw President Obama make a decision not to move forward with prosecutions. In his view, he thought that the United States needed to move on. Um, so it seems that the like opportunity to you know use black sites again or or to reinstitute various forms of of tortures are are limited right now, if only because the number of detainees captured on the battlefield, particularly ISIS detainees, are, are basically zero. Like like un, unlike the the Bush administration where we were in Afghanistan left, arresting people left and right and sending them to these far-flung places, the U.S. doesn't really seem to have um, a, a program to arrest and, and render ISIS criminals, right? Exactly. And I think it's a two-fold question right now. And the first is that the U.S. involvement against ISIS has primarily been an air campaign. So it's an air campaign supported by special forces on the ground, but it it limits the possibility for capturing members of ISIS to, to hold them for detainee handling and questioning. The second aspect, I would say, that limits the possibility of a widespread black site program being instituted in the future is that our allies, the states that essentially hosted these black sites, many of them paid a significant domestic political cost for doing so. So, for example, the, the domestic political reaction in Poland, in finding out that a black site had been hosted there, in hearkening back to Poland's history, it was, it was a deep and complex interrogation of how this could have happened in Poland. And so many of these states' leaders they themselves paid a heavy domestic political price for for partnering essentially with the United States in this way. And so so at this moment, it, it's twofold. I mean, I think our allies have an unwillingness and a, redis, uh, and a reticence to engage in this. But also, I mean, the United States detention policy with regards to ISIS, in no small part as a consequence of what we did 
with regards to Al Qaeda and Taliban has been a policy of of passing the buck. Has been a policy of no policy, and any ISIS detainees that are that are captured, we almost immediately after initial sort of tactical intelligence collection gathering, we turn them over to our partners. So we turn them over to the Iraqis and the Kurdish forces. So so there really isn't like like this. Um opportunity i should say like like the the supply of potential people to be rendered isn't just isn't there though presumably if the us does increase uh the number of boots on the ground in places like syria uh or iraq even then that might change i think it is that combined with the interest not being there i mean president obama went out of his way in my opinion to avoid crafting a policy to avoid making the mistakes of his predecessor and where where I think that is a problematic decision is that it it similarly left these gray spaces, right? It 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 left open the possibility for then his successor to craft a policy as they would see fit. And so so there there hasn't been the supply to date in in no small part because of the nature of the war fight against ISIS, but there wasn't the interest under President Obama either. And and one final point, I, I think it probably deserves to be made, and, and I know that you make this point, um, so so I'd like you to make it, which is the the, the question isn't really whether or not torture works uh, or doesn't work in, in gathering intelligence, but really the, the question is we don't torture because it's wrong. It's, it's a morally wrong thing to do. Exactly, and I... I really want to emphasize that because I think that is something that has gotten lost in this current discourse. I mean, one of Trump's first interviews, he said, well, you know, it, it, Secretary Mattis has convinced me otherwise, but, but torture still works. And I, I just want to emphasize it's not against the law. Torture is not against the law because it doesn't work. It's against the law because it is morally wrong. It's morally abhorrent. It, it is it is a way of collecting intelligence that corrodes the individual collecting that intelligence. It it corrodes the interrogator. It corrodes that person's body. It corrodes their psyche. And and as a form of collecting intelligence, it yields systematic errors. It yields poor information. And so, I think even even raising the question of whether or not it works, it's the wrong question to think about. The reason that it's against the law is because it's morally abhorrent. Uh, well, Elizabeth, thank you so much for your time. This was helpful and, and uh, I think provides really good background into some of the big policy debates that we may be facing in the, the coming years as these questions, which um, you know were irrelevant, not irrelevant, but, but were less acute during the Obama administration, become a little bit more. Um, they have they the have reemerged again. They Here have reemerged again. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time, Mark. I really appreciate it. Have a good afternoon. Thanks. All right. Thank you all for listening. A little bit more about those bonus features you get if you become a recurring contributor to the podcast via Patreon. Patreon is the name of the platform I use to process the uh, premium membership, and it's a platform that was created to support internet content creators like myself. So please do go to globaldispatchespodcast.com, click on the support the show link, and you will not only get access to now three bonus episodes and counting, but you will get a complimentary subscription to my Don's Digest Global News Clips service, which is a email I send out each and every weekday morning curating the top links that a globally 
aware person should have in their inbox every morning. It's a news clip service for the discerning global set, we'll say. Well, thank you, and uh, see you soon. All right, thanks. Bye.